Now we're finishing up in Luke chapter 15. We've been in these three parables that all have the same purpose as showing the love of God to search for the lost. The lost sheep reminds us that everyone is important to God. The lost coin reminds us that everyone is of value to God. And the lost son reminds us that God is willing to forgive anyone, anywhere, anytime. I don't know if you've realized this, but we are surrounded by lostness. Lostness intensifies every day. The population expands. The danger is we become dull to it. Another danger, a side danger to that, is that we quit inviting people to meet our God. When I first came to Sherwood, I could go to any business in town just about, and someone would say, hey, have you ever visited Sherwood? I haven't had anybody in a business ask me that in years. You know why? Because we quit telling people we'd love for them to join us at church. We used to come and meet people, and people would meet us here. And we say, I'll meet you at the church. This is the door I'll meet you at. I'll come by and pick you up, and we'll go out to eat afterwards. And now we just come alone and wonder how quick we're going to get out. It's a lostness that has lost its essence of importance to us. That our neighbors on each side of us, the people that we go to school with, the people that we work with, the people that we come in contact with, if they die today without Christ, they spend eternity in hell. It used to be a hundred years ago. Now most churches don't have Sunday night services. and Y'all can stop having them when I'm dead, but we're going to have them as long as I'm here. Uh, but it used to be the Sunday night service was the evangelistic service because the people would work and then they'd be off and you'd go out and visit on Sunday afternoon and bring lost people. There was a man who pastored in London, England that had 1,300 church members every Sunday afternoon going out, knocking on doors and inviting people to come to church and he baptized 1,000 people a year and that wasn't Spurgeon. That was a guy in one of the poorest parts of London where 20 and 30 people were living in one apartment. And they would go and invite them to someone that had good news to share good news with them. We don't do that anymore. We, we see people that have babies, and we never say, hey, we've got a great preschool area. We've got a great nursery. We'd love for you to bring your baby here and just let other people just love your family and help your family. We see people's names in the obituaries. And the first thought that comes to our mind is, I bet somebody robs their house while they're at the funeral. The first thought in our mind is not... Let's go see if we can minister to them. It's my neighbor. They've had a death. What am I going to do about it? Well, I'm just going to drive by and hope somebody's talking to them. You see, what we've also done is we've made it about the preacher doing it all. My job is to equip the saints to do the work of ministry. That's my job. My calling, scripturally, is to do the work of ministry. It's not to do all the ministry. And by the way, if you hadn't noticed, I couldn't do it if I wanted to. You, all our staff combined couldn't do it if we wanted to. It takes the body. It takes the body believing that they have been put on this planet for a purpose to love and serve a community. It takes that for us to fill empty seats with people that need Jesus. Now, <clears throat> none of that was in my notes, so the Spanish translator is going crazy right now. <clears throat> Jesus said, if you have seen me, 
you have seen the Father. The Father is watching. The Father is, is waiting for the lost and for prodigals to come home. Jesus said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Here's where we've kind of flipped that verse in the wrong way. We've said, follow me and be fishers of men. No, the key is follow me, follow God, and he will make us fishers of men. In other words, when I'm following God, I'm going to want in my heart and in my life what is in the heart and life of Jesus. And that is for men and women and boys and girls to come to a saving faith in Christ. So all of that gets us to Luke chapter 15 a very familiar story. In fact, most of us think we know this story and are already got it figured out exactly what I'm going to say. I hope I say something that maybe catches you off guard, but you got to stay awake to hear it. Verse 11, and he said a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. Now just stop right there. Here's what this son said. I don't want to wait until you're dead to get my money. I want it now. Now there's a son that doesn't love his dad. I don't want to wait. I want mine now. You may live a long time. If you live a long time, I'll never get the money. I want my money now. Greed, materialism, selfishness, self-centeredness. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went off on a journey into this distant country, and there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in the country, and he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out as one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into his field to feed swine. Stop right there. Pigs were unclean animals to the Jews. For a Jewish boy to work and feed pigs was disgusting to Jewish people. Now that's because they didn't know how good bacon is. <laughs> See, part of what you got in the New Covenant is you got bacon <laughs> and country ham. Somebody ought to say hallelujah. I mean, it's just... <laughs> and he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I'm dying here with hunger? I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he got up and came to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. Notice what the father does. He felt compassion for him, ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. And bring the fatted calf, kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. 
he was lost and has been found. And they began to what? Celebrate. Now, his older brother, who was very active in the church, <laughs> there every time the door was open, always corrected the pastor, anything he didn't do right, was in the field griping about the fact that nobody appreciated him. I'm just adding in the cat paraphrase here just a little bit. And when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. Well, this was not a Baptist church. And he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he became angry and was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, look, for so many years, I have been serving you and I've never neglected a command of yours. That's how an ungrateful son talks, by the way. He doesn't say it like he's reading on a flat line. I've done everything for you. How dare you do this for this boy? He is sorry and no good. I wish you'd never come back home. I've never neglected a command, and yet you have never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. Notice how many times I shows up in his response. I have served. I've never neglected. I might celebrate my friends. And when this son of yours came who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, by the way, that didn't come out before. You know what he did? He just so mad at his brother and so mad at his dad, he just starts making up lies about what he's been doing. He doesn't know what he's been doing. He has no idea. So he says, I tell you what, dad, this guy's been sleeping around. You going to let him come in? You going to put a robe on him? You're not going to check him for transmitted diseases? What is wrong with you? And you kill the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, son, you have always been with me and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice. For this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. The father's house was sufficient. I love a story about Martin Luther. Martin Luther said one of his boyhood teachers, every time he would come to the class, would, would bow his head toward his students. And one student asked him one day, why do you bow your head toward us? And Martin Luther's teacher said, because I believe there is greatness in every one of you. Now, you and I are too often like the older brother. We look at people and think we're better than them and God should grade on a curve and he should look at us with more favor than he looks at them. But in the heart of every person, there's the ability to be saved and become like Jesus. But we have to see it in them. We can't drive by them and say, that person will never be saved. Well, not with your attitude, it won't. 
Not if you and I don't do something about it. They may never be saved. If somebody doesn't tell them, they may never know. There was nothing lacking in this father's house. There was love and security. But if you read the account and read about both sons, you realize neither one of them appreciated the father that they had. One of them didn't appreciate the blessings and squandered his inheritance, and the other one wanted it all for himself. Now, here's the problem with the parable of the prodigal son. There are people in this room that you have had a lousy physical dad. Might have physically abused you, might have verbally abused you, might have sexually abused you, might have abandoned you, but don't let a lousy physical dad keep you from understanding what a good heavenly father is like. And if you've had a good dad, thank God for it. And don't be a prodigal and don't be the older brother. Thank God for the dad you had. But uh, all of us could tell stories about horror stories about dads that have not stepped up to the plate and been the godly men that they should be. But that is not a picture of our God who is a loving heavenly father. He is the father everyone wishes they had. And these two sons had him and didn't appreciate him. Both sons failed to appreciate him. Here's the problem. There is God as he is, and there is God as we conceive him to be. Some of us think God is just up there mad and ticked off and waiting to hit us over the head with a hammer. Some of us think God is really sloppy in his love, and he'll just love anybody and anything. Some of us think God is a distant deity. There's God as he is, and then there's God as we create him and conceive him to be. And we make a God like we want him to be too often inside the church and don't teach and preach the God who is a loving heavenly father. He loves the unlovely. He loves the downcast, the outcast, the people we give up on. You see, if we have the wrong picture of God, we will excuse bad attitudes. If we have the wrong picture of God, we'll fail to give and to serve and to share the gospel. We'll turn away from our opportunity to reach our one for Christ. All of these attitudes paint a wrong picture of who God is. You see, listen, if we're one way here and another way outside the church, we have painted the wrong picture of the Father. We've painted the wrong picture of the Father. I mean, if people see us in church, I can't, oh, man, I can't believe they're in church. If people hear us talking out in the community and it's just foul and vile or evil or slanderous, and then they come and we're singing Ancient of Days. I love that song. Glad, glad, Mark, glad you brought that song back. That's, that's really good. I like that little addition you did. And then you go out and you just start cussing somebody. You have the wrong picture of God. He's a way maker. One of the ways he's a way maker is he can change your stinking thinking. And he can change your behavior patterns. But you've got to give your life to him. Notice that, that here everything in the Christian life is a response to what we believe about God. If I believe God loves the lost, I'm going to love the lost. If I believe God is a giver, I'm going to be a giver. If I believe that God is a forgiver, I'm going to be forgiving. If I believe that God loves the least, I'm going to love the least. 
If I believe that God's an old stick in the mud, then that's what I'm going to be. You see, I like to meet people before they've met too many Christians that have gotten over their salvation. I like to meet a new Christian. Vance Havner said, I'd rather try to calm down a fanatic than breathe life into a corpse. And sometimes that's the church. Notice the father grieved, one that left and one that stayed. There was nothing lacking in the father's house, but he grieves when we don't understand his love. He grieves when we don't celebrate the saving of the lost. God exposed himself. He revealed himself as our father. In the story of the shepherd, the father is the shepherd. In the story of the lost coin, he is the seeking savior. In the story of the prodigal, he is the faithful father who forgives. The sheep left the safety of the fold. The coin was in the home but lost. The son left home, one stayed home, but they both had bad attitudes. But in these three stories, we see the length that God will go to save one. To save one. How far will we go to save one? The sheep was lost because it didn't pay attention. The coin was lost because of carelessness. And both those boys were lost because of choices. One consistent thing about these stories is that they were lost. You ever realize you missed a moment? I was uh, sitting in an office a couple of weeks ago. And uh, one of the people that works in that office walked by and said, uh, hey, I saw you on the news last night. I said, really? Was I in the back of a police car? I mean, where? I saw you on the news. You were praying over the, the mayor and the, and the city commissioners. He said, I, I saw that. And then he went on, and I sat there, and there was a lady sitting across from me. And she started asking me some questions. And I had my mind somewhere else. And when I went back for my appointment, the Spirit of God got me and said, Michael, it's just you and that woman you didn't know sitting right across from you. And you never asked her to come to church. You didn't ask her if she had a relationship with Jesus. And when you walk out, she'll be gone. And I got under conviction. And I had to have an adjustment of my thinking. Because in 67 years, that's the only time I've ever seen that woman. I may never see her again. I want to ask you, who have you seen this week? That, I mean, the opportunity was right there for a two-minute conversation. And you just said, yeah, got other things on my mind. We're all guilty of it. But if we don't change, then nothing changes. If we don't get intentional, then nothing changes in people's lives. 
the, the world and its thinking will never fulfill you. Listen, you can be in the church and be in a distant land. There's no mention of how far the distant land is. It could have been a neighboring land. But you can be in the church and be worldly and not care about lost people. Uh, you can be in the church and live in a pig pen six days a week. You can be in the church and be judgmental about other people. But these sons are both, one away and one at home, are both distant from the Father. They don't have the Father's heart. They don't have the Father's mindset. They had a hard heart. In fact, the older brother would have been glad if his younger brother had never come back. Ah, he comes back. Now I'm going to have to forgive him. I don't want to forgive him. I don't want to love him. I don't want to be nice to him. I like being mad about it. Does that describe any of us today? I don't want them to. Some of us, if we were God honest, God honest, we have members of our family that we don't want to get right with God because then we've got to forgive them. And we've got to change our thinking about them. We hope they don't come to the family reunion. But how will the world ever see Jesus if we say to anybody, don't come? How will the world see Jesus? If they see in us a restrictive mentality... There's a lot of talk about walls at the border, but I want to tell you something. There are way too many walls in too many churches where people are not welcomed and wanted. You see, worldliness is anywhere you're away from God, and you can be away from God and be in church every Sunday. Worldliness is thinking you can live on your own agenda. Worldliness is rejecting the Father's love and choosing your own path. I, I would submit to you that the son that stayed home was just as lost in sin as the son that squandered the inheritance. Because the son that stayed home was full of the works of the flesh. He had a form of godliness without the power. We talked about this not long ago that the Pharisees had sins in good standing. You know, sins in good standing is what Baptists do. It's what Methodists do. It's what Presbyterians do. What Catholics do. What Episcopalians do. We come to church, but then we justify that we're not as bad as those people out there in the world. So when we gossip, it's not really a sin. It's a prayer request. I'm just burdened about so-and-so who's living in sin. Living in sin. Living, living, living in sin. Bad sin. I could tell you stuff. I don't want to say too much, but I'm going to tell you some so you know how to pray more intelligently. Envy. I mean, get out of your car. You walk past the car. Too. Man, I wish I could afford that car. I bet they're not tithing. I bet that's what it is. They're not tithing. Jealousy. How come their kids get to do this and my kids don't get to do this? Strife. Remember Bill Stafford? <laughs> Went to be with the Lord not long ago. Bill Stafford said, you cannot say murmur, murmur, murmur with a smile on your face. Just try it. Come on. Murmur, murmur, murmur. Not one of you smiling while you're doing that. 
That's a sin in good standing. Not according to God. I want to ask you something. Why are Baptist churches dying? One of the reasons we're dying is because we've got lost church members that think they're saved. There are a lot of lost church members that made a decision, but they never changed their life. They never gave their hearts to Jesus. One of the reasons our churches are dying is because carnal people don't care about lost people. Hey, just as long as you got it for me, and the heat is right for me, and the air conditioning is right for me, and I got my parking space, I don't care about those people. And another reason our churches are dying is we really don't believe people go to hell. We really don't believe that there's a hell. Jesus said more about hell than anybody, so I'm going to go on him. There is a hell that people go to that don't know Jesus. And I'll tell you a big reason why churches are dying is because older generations, and I am an older generation, so don't get mad, don't go to Cracker Barrel and talk about me today. I am an older generation. I, I, could be on a, I could have been on AARP for 15 years. I got a Medicare card. I can collect Social Security. I'm not, but I can. So I'm an old people, all right? So that being said, part of the problem with the church in America today is that people my age don't want to change enough to reach people that are younger than us. We don't want to change to reach preschoolers and children and teenagers and college students and single adults. We want it just like we always had it. We want our pew, our place, our time, our church. We want it. They're changing our church. It never was your church. Never has been, never will be. There is no place in heaven for your church. The only place in heaven is for God's church, God's people, the redeemed, the new covenant, those born again through Jesus Christ. There's no place in heaven for your church or my church. It's his church. The prodigal in the far country came to his senses. Ron Dunn said, he won't let you stay as you are, but there are no words of recrimination. You notice what the father, he was watching, he was waiting, he ran to him. He showed compassion. He kissed him. He gave him a ring. He gave him a robe. He probably stunk. He didn't say, go take a bath, son, before. I don't want to get close to you. He didn't say, by the time you came home, I want to tell you some things that I've been ticked off about since you've been gone. You know, that's what we do. We tell people everything they did wrong when they come back. Hey, they came back. He came back. What did he say to his father? I am not worthy. He was never worthy. By the way, you and I were never worthy of the father's love. Nothing about us made us worthy. Well, I've been in church all my life, still not worthy. And God replaced, gave him. A ring and a robe is a symbol of honor and prestige. And he put sandals on his feet for the gospel of peace. And he said, kill a fatted calf. We are going to have a party. Well, when's the last time your heart just started racing when you saw somebody walk in the baptistry that you didn't know? Well, it's easy to stand behind when we know, oh, it's a family member going to take a selfie, going to post it on Facebook. But when's the last time you just got slap happy 
about somebody that you didn't know that got saved. You don't know their story. You don't know their backstory. But they were once lost and now they're found. That ought to make us happy. Remind myself of Bill Stafford. If you, one of y'all doesn't have a spell in a minute, I'm going to have one. There was no rebuke. There was no probation. He came home and he found everything he was looking for. The other son wanted to hold the brother's sin over his head, thought he was better than the brother. I love this quote by David Redding. The more one sees of this older son, the easier it is to understand why the young one left. Can I tell you something? Can I tell you why 90, listen to me, listen to me. Everybody right here for just a minute. If you hadn't been right here, get right here right now. Why 92% of young people in evangelical churches leave the church and never come back after they graduate from high school. You want to know why? It's because they've grown up in churches with older brothers. And they've seen the hypocrisy of singing about Jesus but acting like the devil. And they've seen the hypocrisy of only loving what one likes and not loving people that they don't understand. Listen, I grew up in that kind of church. The salvation for me was I had a youth minister that loved Jesus and I had some young people that loved Jesus. Tuesday morning at 7.30, much to Terry's chagrin, I will have breakfast with my 81-year-old youth minister who still teaches a Bible study on Monday nights and still longs to see young people reached and saved at 81. So if I live to be 81, I want to be like him. I want to still want to see kids saved. I still want to see kids respond to the gospel. We cannot, nor would she, should we ever condone, and I wouldn't be a member of a church that had young people that said, those people don't love Jesus, they just love religion. That is not worth our loyalty. Religion is not worth loyalty. Jesus is worth loyalty. Christ's likeness is worth loyalty. Why did Jesus tell these stories in the first place? Verse 1, Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near him to listen to him. And both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And so what the older son does is the scorn and contempt of verses 1 and 2 show up in the older brother. You see, religion says God hates debauchery. I would say, the father says, I also hate a bad disposition. It breaks God's heart when we are flipping about things that he cares about, when we disobey the word, when we harden our hearts, when we resist the Holy Spirit. In the shepherd, the woman and the father, we see God's heart for the lost. One author said this, to look for one lost sheep we see the Son of God sacrificing love. In the woman, we see the Spirit of God in searching love. And in the Father, we see suffering love. You see, we will never reach the lost 
If we want church to please us, it's got to please Him. It's got to cause a celebration in heaven. I don't think it's pleasing to God when we have service after service and nobody comes to faith in Christ. It says, I'm not inviting people like I need to. We're not inviting people like we need to. Last Sunday, nobody came, but I walked out and at the next step desk, there's a young man and his wife and Jim McBride is sharing the gospel with him and he's praying to receive Christ. It doesn't have to always happen down here, but it ought to sometimes happen down here. Say, well, nobody got saved today. The the question if I say nobody got saved today is who did I invite that they might get saved? Who did I invite? Who did I bring? Who did I ask to come with me? Charles Allen, the Methodist preacher, called the older, older brother the most hopeless sinner in the Bible. I'm just going to miss the last point. Uh, But I'm going to end with this. Herb Revis, I'll preach with him tomorrow in uh, Mississippi at their evangelism conference. And uh, (laughs) Herb Revis is a fireball. I mean, he, you know, I'm worn out listening to him. Because, I mean, he paces and he he goes. He's old school preacher, but, man, he's got some great lines. This is one of his best ones. The problem with the church is temperature, not theology. We're just not hot for God. What do I need to do? I need to love lost people. There's an old hymn. used to be number 137 in the hymn book. That tells you how old I am. Now I think it's number 178, Mark says it's like, is it 178? 174, it's somewhere in there. Called, Lord, I'm Coming Home. And the verse says, I've wandered far away from God. Now I'm coming home. Some of you are prodigals in the pew. Some of you have prodigals that are out in the pig pen right now. And in a moment when we stand and Mark and the choir sing, if you've got a prodigal and it's breaking your heart, and I'm going to invite you in just a moment to come to this altar and just to stand, and we want to pray that prodigals would come to their senses today. But if you're an older brother and you've got religion, religion, but you don't have Jesus, you got church membership. You remember at Sherwood. But you don't have Jesus. And you've become hard and crusted in your religion. And depending on your religion to get you to heaven, I want to invite you to come to the saving arms of Jesus today and give your life to Him. Our men are going to be at the end of the aisles to receive you if you need to trust Christ as your personal Savior today. But if if you've got a prodigal, then I'm going to ask you to get up and, and just come before God and call His name and ask that that prodigal, wherever he is, wherever he is, wherever she is, would come to their senses and come back to the Father.